right? You don't have to be employed in international education to make a huge difference or bend destinies. You can be just an individual in a community who has nothing really to do with this field of international education, but like you're the one who are enabling the opportunity and the difference and the transformation and the challenge. So I think that's really exciting. Hey, Garish, here we are back, another episode of Destiny Benders. And today is International Women's Day. For our yes. podcast listeners, you might not realize we usually record the podcast a week before we post it. So by the time you hear this, it will have passed. But today is International Women's Day. So happy International Women's Day. Garish. Yes, happy International Women's Day. Although I think every day should be Women's Day. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to meet our guest today. What do we know about him? Daniel Obst is the president and CEO of AFS Intercultural Programs. And um, I don't actually know a whole lot about AFS. I do know they do high school exchange programs, international exchange programs. That's all I really know about them. So I'm excited to learn more and to certainly hear about Daniel and his story uh, of how he got into international education. AFS has been around for a long time. I know um, several people who did exchange programs through that. I mm -hmm. used to volunteer. Let's get Daniel on. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today, Girish and I are thrilled to welcome Daniel Opes to the podcast. He is president and CEO of AFS Intercultural Programs. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be on the podcast. Good to see you again, Daniel. Thank you again for making time. So as we always do, we want to know who you are. Where do you come from? How did you get to where you are? And all of that. Well, yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Germany, in, in Berlin, Germany. I was um, born there to an American father and a German mother. Grew up actually speaking mostly German at home. And what it, it really kind of changed, I think, my trajectory in life um, as I was growing up in Berlin. So I was six when my parents decided to adopt a 12 year old um, refugee boy from Cambodia. And then a few years later, I um, got a sister from India um, who was seven when she was adopted. And then a few years after that, uh, another brother from Colombia. A few years after that, also another biological brother. So I had this like big family. It felt like every dinner was like sitting at the, you know, United Nations General Assembly. <laughs> but I think what it kind of taught me very early on is just the sense of, you know, difference and diversity and, and, and how you deal with that. It's not always easy, right? But like in this context of family and how families can be so welcoming of others. And then I did, when I was 16, I did an exchange year um, from Germany to Warner Robins, Georgia. Um, which was a very different experience and um, really kind of like opened my eyes to all kinds of other things. The reason why I went is that I wanted to kind of experience the American side of me. And then um, I finished school in Germany and came back to the U.S. for college. And then kind of the rest is history. <laughs> wow. How cool is that? I mean, there's one thing to have multiple siblings. Another thing to have multiple siblings from different cultures, but I think almost entirely different to have multiple siblings who came into the family at different ages, mm -hmm. right? So maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what were some of your favorite memories of all your multicultural siblings from all over the world? 
Well, I think kind of the the thing that sticks with me most was was my my first brother for sure, right? Because that was the biggest change, and it was um, in 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 the eighties in in Berlin, and there were a bunch of boys from Cambodia that were refugees that the Red Cross had brought um, to Germany, and. Um, my parents told me, you know, much later, kind of like how how they approached this, but they basically saw an ad in the paper that said, you know, we're looking for foster um, families, and they went to this information evening, and at the end, the Red Cross asked, so like, who's willing to support this? And nobody raised their hand, right? And so that was like, my parents was like, okay, we we have to do this, and you know, it's like it was this process of like getting to know the the boy also like to make sure that you know we fit together as a family but that also i i can start getting used to it and it was through play right we just started playing together he didn't speak german i none of us obviously spoke cambodian there was no english in between that anyone spoke so it was just really kind of i think the two of us were what helped started the family life because in the first few months like he couldn't even really communicate so well with my parents but it was like through that play that was really incredible and I you know he was like all of a sudden like the bigger brother and the protector and he was quite strong right we went to Florida to visit my grandfather and he climbed on a um, coconut tree to get a coconut down and things like that he was just you know different and it was really exciting I think for me to have someone like that all of a sudden in the family. That is incredible. And so then they adopted, did you say a daughter or? Yeah, mm-hmm. from India. Mm-hmm. From India. And was she also like the Cambodian? Um, was, was she a refugee? In, but that doesn't seem like that would be. No, that, that was no. different. So there was an adoption agency called Terre des Hommes, which was a kind of a UN affiliated agency. And so my, my parents had thought, you know, it's like this experience with my Cambodian brother was really good and they wanted, you know, to do that again. And so I think they reached out to the agency and said, you know, it's like, we, we'd be interested in perhaps another child. And so they had um, said that Mina, my sister, was in desperate need of a family. She was dropped off in, in front of an orphanage. And, you know, there, there was really no other context to that. It was really important. And so um, my parents did that. It was also an, an amazing experience. So I was going to say, do you think that that this experience with your siblings, um, multicultural siblings, is that kind of what led you into a path into international education? I, I mean, I, I understand how having a German mom and American dad that also, you know, might have, we have a number of guests who come on who sometimes have parents of two different cultures or two different countries, but your story is totally unique to us in the podcast. And do you think that's that influenced you somehow in international education? It, it, it 100% did. But I would say as I was growing up, it was not conscious, right? It, became, it, it felt kind of normal because that was what the normal family life was, even though I recognized that it did not look like that in, in most other families. But it just... It, it felt normal that that is how it was. That's how we went on vacations together. That's how we lived together, right? But then I guess later, as I reflect on <laughs> why I do what I do or the choices I have made, it for sure was the defining factor. And I, I knew it's like from the time that I was like 12 or something, I wanted to be a diplomat. That was my like career dream. And it, perhaps it was kind of this always the sense of like, I want to be part of other cultures, learn about other cultures, but also communicate about my own cultural background. Yeah. I mean, so incredible, right? I mean, I have a question for you about your college and career journey, but 
I'm thinking about your first brother from Cambodia. If you had not gotten along or if you hadn't kind of welcomed him into your home, your sister might not have happened or your other brother might not have happened, right? So, I mean, just your role in kind of bringing the family together changed the lives of your sister and your brother and everybody else, I'm, I'm assuming. So what an incredible story, man. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm just shook, actually. So it's pretty cool. But uh, like Jessica was saying, so you wanted to be a diplomat, so you went to college. Maybe tell us a little bit about where you went to college. What were you thinking when you went to college that you're going to do? And then what will your career trajectories look like? Mm-hmm. Well, so I mentioned my exchange year in, in high school in Warner Robins, Georgia, and I had an AP history class. And I have no idea why they put me in an AP history class. Like my English wasn't very good at that point, And I knew nothing about American history, but I, I learned a lot, but there was an amazing teacher. And so, you know, that was the time where you had to do the PSAT test. And I took all of that and you could, you know, sign up what programs might interest you. And then the um, the college catalog started flooding in. And so I had a lot of conversations with this teacher and said, like, you know, I want to be a diplomat. That's really what I want to do. And she said, well, then you should look at international affairs programs in Washington, D.C. That's your best bet. Right. And so that's what I got. I got all these course catalogs. I was back in Germany, finished high school there and then started looking at it. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to go to Washington, D.C. I looked at all the bunch of different schools and I applied only to George Washington University. And for the only reason, because the Elliott School of International Affairs was closest to the State Department. <laughs> so it was a very, very practical thing. I knew nothing really about college admissions in the United States. It worked out. Um, and so that that was great. And so I did international affairs and, and European politics. And then I went to England to the London School of Economics for grad school, European studies, kind of government law and policy of the European Union. So with a sense of like maybe not becoming U.S. diplomat, but becoming perhaps a European bureaucrat, which I'm also quite happy that that <laughs> That didn't actually end up happening, but um, was a great experience. And then I, and then I moved to um, uh, New York. Wow. From Washington, D.C. to LSE, and then you immediately moved to New York after graduating was it with a master's degree from, or did you stay in London for a while? Or did you know that New York is where you wanted to go? Was it, or was there a job that drove you there? Well, okay. So um, good question. So uh, basically after LSE, I moved briefly back to Berlin, kind of not really knowing what to do with myself. I was like, you're you're done with your schoolwork. It's like, what, what, what now? And so I applied to a bunch of consulting firms, which didn't work out. And I remember it was, you know, Anderson Consulting back in the days and it was one of those assessment centers and you do the whole day and you do all these different things. And at the end, right, they they give you a job or they don't give you a job. And so they didn't give me a job, but they gave me advice. And I thought that was really great. They were like, we don't think you would like it here. Like, this is not really kind of the fit, you know, for you. And I, I really thought about that, right? It's like, it's on the one hand, really deflating to not get the job, but also someone who actually kind of perhaps cares a little bit about <laughs> what would make you happy as a person, right? And then I had a friend friend in grad school who had moved to New York and just at that moment, she said, you know what? We have a job here if you want to come. And it was in 1998, it was a dot-com startup, right? Like the height of the dot-com bubble. And so it was a online community for young internationals who live, work, or study abroad called, called iagora.com. And so in 
Silicon yeah. Alley and on Broadway and Prince Street in New York, right? This like total startup, everybody in their mid 20s. No, nobody really knew what they were doing. <laughs> and I thought I was in new media and the dot com world. I got my first business card and it said producer. And I thought it was the unbelievably <laughs> coolest thing ever. But what I didn't really realize is like I kind of got into what I always wanted to be, right? Like dealing with people from other cultures, thinking about international education. Um, but it was by chance, essentially. So the United Nations is right there in New York. Did you ever walk past and think, hey, this is where I could be? I mean, because you said you wanted to be a diplomat. Well, so I was at Iagor for a few years, which was amazing to work at a startup, right? Because like, I think you learn so much, and especially when you're so young and you don't really have other people to really tell you what to do because they don't know it either. <laughs> you you learn a lot on the go, but then the bubble burst and uh, um, I Agora moved to Barcelona and I wanted to stay in New York. Um, and that's when I was like looking for another job. And I found IIE, the Institute of International Education, which of course was located directly across from the United States, which I have to admit was one of the reasons why I took the job because I was like, look, I'm closer to the UN. It was, I remember going in for the interview and being like, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm here. Like all these flags fluttering in front of the UN. So it was very exciting. Yeah. So then you said you're glad that you'd end up, you didn't end up becoming a diplomat or a European bureaucrat. Why? Well, look, I was at IIE maybe like, I was at IIE a total of 15 years, but maybe eight years into the job, you start kind of thinking a little bit like what comes next, where am I heading, right? And I had a little bit of this like identity crisis, like but I always wanted to be a diplomat, should I go for it or not? And I was talking to my mother and I was telling her this, she was like, but you're doing that already. You're at IIE, you're like doing delegations with US university leaders to different countries, you're representing education abroad and all these kind of things. It's like, that is what that is. It's just not for the government. I was like, oh my God, you're totally right. <laughs> and so I feel like that that's really where I would say I made the conscious choice to stay in international education because I realized that is actually what I wanted to do. I can make a contribution and a difference in a really different way and perhaps in a more flexible way than with a government. Yeah. And then IIE to AFS. Yeah, that was that was a it was a very hard decision to leave IIE. I I I love everything about IIE, but also like after 15 years, you know, you want an, a new opportunity. And perhaps, I mean, we always say this about international education, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. <laughs> and I was definitely in my comfort zone. And so like this, it was time to try something new and the also the opportunity to take different leadership role as a CEO. Um, that was something that I was both very nervous about, but also excited about. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity to, to make that jump. And you said you you made that conscious decision after your mom pointed out that essentially you were a diplomat at IIE. And certainly I would agree with her. So you've made that conscious decision at that point, but you've continued and you've continued on. And now you've gone from IIE to AFS, staying in international education. What keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? So our podcast is called Destiny Benders. We talk about changing lives, international education, changing lives. And certainly we've pointed out before that, you know, going abroad changes lives. Did that play a part in your decision or was it purely the diplomat kind of side of things or what, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you in international education and, and, and why do you stay? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I wonder about it sometimes because I would say intellectually, what motivates me most is the kind of the, 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 
policy level aspect of international education, right? Kind of like these track two type diplomacy activities between countries as it relates to education and culture, right? That that to me is really motivating, but the changing lives thing <laughs> is what happens to the individual. And that that is so powerful. So when, when you meet any of the you know students or scholarship recipients, uh, bo- both of organizations like IIE at the university level or at organizations like AFS at the high school exchange level, it is unbelievably powerful to see what a difference it makes on an individual to have that experience. And it's, I would say especially it's much much more pronounced at the um, secondary school level where you go through this incredibly transformative experience. You live with a host family. You're completely out of your comfort zone, but you're also in the most formative time of your life and kind of like the difference that happens. So, and I, and I really like the idea of, of, of destiny vendors because I think also in many cases it can be a social mobility program that opens up all kinds of new opportunities that maybe you had never envisioned for yourself or would have been perhaps out of reach that could be possible. And that that's why also I'm so passionate, especially about scholarship programs and providing funding for people to do that so that the work we do is not only for those who can afford it. Um, but so, yes, you're, you're exactly right. It's like, I, I think there, there's a policy level piece, but the changing lives element of the work we do is the most powerful. I want to ask you some questions about just the po- you talk about policy, right? You talk about what's going on in the world right now. Would love to hear your thoughts with the changing guard in terms of the governments, the policies, the hesitation to open doors to uh, immigrants. Where do you see things going? Where do you see our jobs in international education uh, being even more important? Uh, today and moving forward to kind of break down some of those walls. Yeah, I, I mean, from my perspective, is I mean, one of the most important things we can do as educators, in a way, right, is to provide young people with a tool so that they can create the change they want to see. And so, at, at AFS right now, we're very, very focused on developing what we call active global citizens, right, like people who have a sense of belonging to the world, who respect differences, but who are also wanting to take action on whatever thing affects them. And I think that's so important. And like a lot of the recent research report, whether it's from OECD and their PISA study on, on global competence or other studies on Generation Z, Generation Z is so um, upset about the place the world is in and in a way depressed about what <laughs> the organizations and structures are doing about it and not enough. And, and uh, the OECD report also seemed to indicate that young people are eagerly looking for the tools, but schools aren't necessarily providing it to them, right? So it's like, how can we as organizations who work in this space really help equip young people to make that change? Um, one of the, I would say, most motivating new additions that we've made to AFS is we've integrated another not-for-profit organization called the Friendship Ambassadors Foundation into AFS um, a couple of years ago during the pandemic. And it's um, the core program. There is an initiative called the Youth Assembly, which brings together young people from 18 to 32 from all around the world in New York, um, really all focused as a platform on um, advancing sustainable development. And you see those young people and the eagerness to make change in the world like that is the piece i think we need to focus on most as educators and how do you make it affordable because one of the challenges obviously it, the exchanges or the study abroad experiences come with the cost to it very few can afford it 
So what do we do? How do you make it more accessible, more affordable? And, and what role would technology play moving forward to facilitate some of those opportunities? Yeah, I think most important is that more governments, corporations, foundations step up, step up and support international education. I think that's the absolute top priority, and, and many do. Um, and I think this is what's uh, tremendous. At AFS last year, the global AFS network raised $33 million to ensure that 45% of our participants had scholarships, right? And it makes such a huge difference. It makes a difference in terms of how you can select, you know, the best possible students, regardless of whether they can afford it or not, um, or where you select students from and so on. So I think that's hugely important. So I think we need to do much more in terms of raising funds and raising awareness among funders of the value and impact of international education and kind of the return on investment it has for our society. So I think that's a huge thing we all have to do. And I think in general, international education is perhaps not quite as good as we could be <laughs> about that. Um, but in terms of access, I mean, one, one of the ways and which, of course, the pandemic has also accelerated is really the um, virtual programs. And it's something we had played with, I, I would say, on the sidelines at AFS before the pandemic. And we had integrated into, um, you know, our um, young adult programs, especially a digital component. Right. So like because we want to also make sure because so much of our work is in exchange. And how do you make sure that the experience is consistent. When you start in one country, you're selected by one national AFS organization, you go to another, right? It's like, how do you make sure that the learning experience is common? And so some of these virtual experiences seem to really help with that. But then in the pandemic, we completely accelerated that. Now we have all kinds of different virtual programs that reach um, more than 5,000 participants every year. So we've kind of scaled really fairly quickly and, and for different types of programs. And it's really, I think, powerful to see who you can select. I want one of the latest initiatives that we have is a global STEM accelerators program. So it's essentially global learning, intercultural learning, but also with a STEM focus. And this particular initiative is just a scholarship program for girls um, who are in high school. And because of the fact that it was fully scholarship focused, including financial support for, you know, iPads or whatever is necessary in order to access technology, we had 20% um, of the participants were refugee girls, um, whether they were Ukrainian refugees, Syrian refugees in different places, or also a number of girls from Afghanistan who couldn't go to school anymore, right? And so I think this is where virtual experiences can really open up an opportunity for people who may physically be unable to travel <laughs> or are already in a place that is not their home and it's not really the best option to study abroad physically, but you want to be connected to others. So I really think the, the power of the opportunities to connect virtually is huge. We've done a number of research, including research that was funded by the Stevens Initiative that actually show our programs lead to significant increase in um, the inter intercultural development inventory scale. So basically students who go abroad <laughs> or participate in our programs actually <laughs> advance their intercultural development. It's, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity, I think. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned that it's the IDI, right? Is that what mm -hmm. it's called? Yeah. And I was wondering, how do you measure? So we're talking about changing lives and the young people who participate on your programs. But how do you measure that? I mean, I think we all believe that going abroad changes lives and 
we've experienced it perhaps ourselves, but measuring that change or the learning that happens, how do you as an organization know that you're changing lives aside from maybe anecdotal stories from students? Yeah, exactly. And it's so hard because on the one hand, there's the kind of like short term, what's your immediate outcome, right? But then there's also really the long term, how does it change trajectories or destinies, as as, as you put it in, in your title. Um, and so we, we do this in a number of different ways. I mean, the IDI was one me- measure and there are, of course, many others, but we really wanted to see kind of because our core work at AFS is essentially around intercultural learning. And you have to be very intentional about the learning in order, right? Just going abroad may not be sufficient. You have to actually support the students um, in order to reflect on their experiences, kind of to to grasp the concepts. And so for us, it was really empowering to see that not just with the physical study abroad programs, but also with the virtual programs that you could actually advance your intercultural development compared to those who went on the same program, but didn't do this virtual component. Um, that we added. So I think that that was really powerful, that it was actually like a difference. And long-term, we have done in the past uh, kind of like long-term impact studies to see what's the longer-term impact um, on the student's um, trajectory and career trajectory. And it's really quite powerful to see the difference that we make. I think that the next step for us, because we're also so much, it's not just, our program is essentially not just for young people. It's also a program for families, right? Because we are a program that is to host students. And we we often think of families as just a service provider to a student, but really it's a program for them too, right? This decision of accepting a young, another young person into your home um, is both challenging, but also transforming. And I think that's the next piece that we would really like to get better research on. There's not a whole lot of research on the impact of hosting a young person in your home on, on your whole family, right? You know, then at the same time, I think of culturally speaking, the whole idea of study abroad or exchanges or even being a host family is more of a a Western or a global North, you know, kind of a culture. What can we do to spread this a little bit more? Because, you know, I come from India originally. I can't really think of, you know, host families galore across India or students from, you know, Far East or Eastern cultures or Global South thinking about going to spend a year, a whole year in someone else's house in some other country? Well, I think one thing that's really important in order to be, because I actually think the the fact that families are welcoming is everywhere around the world, right? It's more how, how do we actually make the opportunities happen? And I would say international education has not been so good at investing all around the world equally, right? At AFS, we actually have 55 national organizations around the world, including many in Asia and Africa and Latin America. And I think what makes the difference there is that we're a volunteer-driven organization and we are really embedded in the local community. So if you're in Indonesia, right, it's like you, we have AFS in Indonesia, we have volunteers in chapters throughout the country. And it is that kind of community engagement that allows you to engage differently with local families. And so we have no difficulties really in finding families in, in any country around the world, but it, but it becomes harder if you're not kind of of the community locally. And so that's, I think, a huge opportunity for organizations to really always think about like, how do we make this feel culturally relevant and local? How long have you been now, Daniel, with AFS? 
A little over six years. A little over six years. I know. Although I never quite know if you're supposed to count the three years of the <laughs> pandemic. I, or they count twice. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so I guess one question I'd say is, you know, you love AFS. You're really happy. Where do you go from here? Are you Do you see yourself going on to do another aspect of international education, another facet of our of our sector? Or, or what do you feel the future holds for you? Well, you know, I think, I mean, especially if I think about AFS and what we do there, it's the opportunity as a network, right? And as I said, we're 55 national organizations who are locally led and governed. That kind of diversity um, is incredibly powerful. And, and the sense of like how as a network, do we become more than the sum of our parts? So to me, it's like there's so much opportunity within that. And, and you know, what, what we've been experimenting with in the last couple of years and already seeing so much success with these virtual programs, the fact that we're adding this youth assembly where 50% of the participants are from sub-Saharan Africa, which is often not the case in these types of events. It's really powerful um, to think about like different models of, of international education, right? And we, we have been so focused on just the straightforward study abroad. For us, it's also, and, and that's always generally speaking, a bilateral mm-hmm. issue. It's like what we are now experimenting with is like global cohorts of young people, right? It's like you're in the class of 2023 and 8,000 AFS students from all around the world are entering at the same time. And they're all going to different places, right? The sense of like you belong to a global community. I feel there's tremendous opportunity and I want to explore that. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say Secretary General of the UN, but... I know, I was waiting for that, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if, if they you never calling, know. we'll see. <laughs> You never know. You never know. <laughs> this conversation is reminding me of the days back in the late 90s. I used to volunteer as a summer volunteer at the AFS trainings here in Minnesota. Um, so I used to always go and help with the orientation programs and you know, meet all these students from all over the world. So, Well, we thank you for volunteering. And it's we accept volunteers of all ages, all across the world. So. <laughs> Yeah, keep, keep coming back but but i think but i but i mean to that point that is what makes the difference it's individuals who want to volunteer their time right you don't have to be employed in international education to make a huge difference or bend destinies you can be just an individual in a community who has nothing really to do with this field of international education but like you're the one who are enabling the opportunity and the difference and the transformation and the challenge so i think that's really exciting yeah. You know, I'm curious, Daniel, where are your siblings? Like, what paths did they take? Um, all of, Pretty much everybody is, is still in Germany. So I go back as often as I can to see everybody. Most most of them are in, in Berlin and they do all kinds of different things. They come to visit here and it's still fun. So, I mean, I mean, maybe one thing full circle, right? So like Christmas. So we always celebrated Christmas. It used to always be my parents who hosted and at some point, my parents said, you know what, you know, we're getting a little bit older. It's kind of exhausting ho- hosting these like huge, you know, dinner parties. And then my older brother from Cambodia and his wife, he, he ended up marrying a Cam- Cambodian woman and they have two kids. And they, you know, maybe 10 years ago started hosting our family Christmas. So, you know, we go there for traditional Cambodian 
meal at Christmas and you have your Christmas food and you unwrap the presents. But it's kind of like also like how your family patterns can just be so enriched by this kind of opportunity. Right? And I think that to me is so exciting. Absolutely. Wow. That's fascinating. And so you're the only one who, who flew, I guess, to shores afar and living in, you're still in New York? Are you still in I'm New York? still in New York, Brooklyn, New York. Yes. As you were saying that you, or you arrived in New York in 1998 to start that role at Iagora. We were in New York about the same time. I moved to New York City in the summer of 1999. So I was just thinking we, our paths may have crossed and we never would have even known somewhere in New I'm York. I'm sure, City. exactly. I know. And that that's why it's, I, I, I love being here because it still feels fresh and you meet people from everywhere around the world. It just feels like home. A couple other questions as we wrap up. So I don't know if you've had a chance to go travel to Cambodia because of your brother or to India because of your sister. And you you said, was it Colombia, Venezuela? Where did you say? Colombia. Mm-hmm. Colombia. Did you spend time in each of those countries, significant time? Um, in Colombia and India, yes. Um, not yet in Cambodia, but the plan is for um, probably next year that we go with the whole family. I mean, the most um, incredible thing about my brother, right? He escaped very young, of course, from the Khmer Rouge and was put into a, you know a, a refugee camp. Essentially, had no idea what happened to his parents. And years later, after he had already been in our family, he actually ended up finding his parents and they were still alive, um, which was like one of those things you, I mean, because there were actually like individuals who were specifically focused on helping to find families, right, of, of the young boys who had to flee. Um, so that was incredible. And, and he was able to be with them. And so I would very much love to go with him when he goes, right? It's a very yeah. different experience. I think um, I've shied away from going on my own, but now I want to go with his whole family. <laughs> what we like to do at the end of our podcast is usually r- wrap up with something we call quick fire questions. Um, so Girish and I will just shoot a couple of questions at you, just sort of random, lighthearted things that we like to ask. <laughs> no pressure, really. Um, so I'm going to start with, okay, New York City. I used to live in New York. I love New York too. What's your favorite restaurant? Where do you like to go when you when you think, okay, I need to go out to eat tonight. I'm going to get this. Diner. It's mm. an iconic restaurant in Williamsburg. Best burger. It's a tiny place in oh, an old diner okay, card, okay. but it's one of those farm to table things. So it's only called diner. It's not a diner, although it looks okay. like one. <laughs> Okay. I was going to actually ask you about the best, best pizza in New York. I don't know if there's like a favorite place. Oh, yes. Roberta's. Roberta's. Also in Williamsburg and Bushwick. Oh, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. I should have asked you first before I got there. <laughs> but I'll be back. Uh, favorite place to travel to? Ooh, um, that's a hard one because I feel like... No, I won't answer that because I think there's so many favorite places that you'd like. No, but you also like find new favorite places that you didn't expect. We went to Scotland last year on a whole road trip. We did the North Coast 500 and I would not have really necessarily picked Scotland as one of my favorite places, but it became one of them. And I feel that that's often what it is with travel. Yeah. Well, where would you go back to the places you've been? You're like, okay, I'm definitely coming back here. I would want to definitely go back to Colombia um, and see more of the country, which is really amazing. Um, 
I'd love to go back to India and we will because I, we have the AFS Global Network meeting coming up in, in um, November. So I think that'll be great. Question, what do you do to relax? I mean, you're pro- president and C- CEO, so probably very busy on the road all the time, lots of travel. When you just need to chill out and relax and just have Daniel time, what do you do? Well, so we have a house in upstate New York. And so it is great to go there on the weekends. I am not a gardener though, so that definitely does not relax me. That stresses me out. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but, but 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 I love to be up there and just read and unwind. I love playing tennis. Um, I like going on long walks. So all of that really helps. But oh, although I'm not that much of a relaxer, I would say I, I do. <laughs> I, I I am glued to my iPhone. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I see a lot of books behind you there. What's your favorite? Yeah, half book? of them are unread. <laughs> <laughs> That's the unread. I hear you on that as well. What's your, what's your favorite book among those? Well, I have been just reading a fascinating book called Youthquake and Why Demographics in Africa Matter. Um, and that's been totally eye-opening, right? It's like we don't know enough about the tremendous potential that is um, all across Africa with so many young people. And so I think that's been super exciting and eye-opening and also helping me think about how can we do more work um, across the, the, the continent. You said youth quick? Youth quick. Mm-hmm. By who is it written by? Edward Pace. Okay. Youthquake by Edward Pace. Pace. Great. We always try to share these recommendations because I've found a lot of good books that our guests uh, recommend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, Daniel, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Hopefully it was a nice trip down memory lane for you. We really enjoyed it. Love what AFS is doing. Uh, Wish you the best of luck with more uh, global success and, and progress. Well, thank you so much for doing this podcast. As I said, I think it's such a great opportunity to just be able to talk about why we're in this, why we're passionate about it, just to have a conversation about how we ended up here. (laughs) And I'm sure we all came from different walks of life, but here we are together. So I really appreciate your, your conversation. Thanks for listening to Destiny Benders. In the next episode, we speak with Nitina Chopra Dua, who is the head of the Career Guidance Center at the Shiv Nadar School in Noida, India.